Welcome to the Chabad Around the World podcast. My name is Mandy Bressinger, and I'll be your host, taking you on an adventure every single week. Together, we'll fly out to remote places around the world to meet up with the Chabad emissaries, hear about their stories, their daily activities, and the inspiration that keeps them going on a daily basis. I'm very excited to welcome today Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Menachem Lazar, the Chabad Rabbi to Rome, Italy. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much, man, uh, Rabbi Mendy. Um, you hear me well, yeah? I hear you perfect. perfect. Okay, so I think we'll start with a short uh, presentation and then we could uh, move on to more questions and answers that maybe people will have. Let me see. Could you just give me the power of uh, sharing the screen? Yeah. Okay, so I'll just start in the meantime. So welcome, everybody. My name is Menachem Lazar. I'm not the rabbi of Chabad in Rome. There's a lot of rabbis. I'm just one of them. Um, Actually, I'll start a little bit with the history of my my family. My parents actually are uh, Holocaust survivors, and they... um, they grew up in Austria and in Hungary, and they survived the war. My father escaped in 1939, and my mother um, survived during the war hide, in hiding in Budapest, and she came to America in 1947. That's where they met, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe sent them on a mission to Milan, Italy. That's 1961. That's uh, quite a while back. And at that time, there weren't really too many um, Chabad emissaries in the world, and it, uh, Italy was uh, uh, not what it is today. So uh, this is, um, from there, my parents, uh, we are eight siblings, and we're spread all over the world, as all Chabad families, uh, in uh, uh, New York, New Jersey, Russia, Hungary, Italy, Minnesota, and also here in Rome. Okay, so Fantastic. if you have any questions, you could stop me and uh, all right. Well, we got to know you, thank you so much. And uh, I understand also, I think it's your brother that's the chief rabbi in Russia, correct? That, yeah, so yeah. my brother is the chief rabbi of Russia, and actually, I have um, another sister, a brother in law that lives there, another uh, nephew. Actually, my nephew is the one who organizes these. Um, big trips for the for the youth uh maybe you've heard the last trip they had in in uh, dubai with uh, they made a, a wedding in the desert in, in next to dubai with about a thousand uh, people for i, I don't, not the for, maybe not the first jewish wedding but for sure the biggest jewish wedding uh, in dubai there. yeah and um and then i have also a brother-in-law who's there uh yeah thank god Incredible. we have uh, when you're joined Chabad and you have family all over the world. <laughs> Can you just share with us before we go on to this beautiful uh, slideshow, which I'm very excited that you have it prepared for us and uh, for, the, for, you to, for you to show it to us all. Uh, you mentioned your parents are Holocaust survivors. I know your father has a very special story, uh, which I think will be very meaningful to uh, the crowd here. If you don't mind sharing it with uh, as a boy, five years of age that I've heard a couple of times. <laughs> I mean, my father has <laughs> a lot of stories. He was actually interviewed by the by Jem, Jewish Educational Media. He spoke, I think, for over six hours, and uh, actually, they just interviewed him um, now again to get even more details. So I don't know exactly which story you're referring to, but uh, I mean, he grew up in Vienna, and his um, siblings all left with the kinder transport. And he was the youngest, so he stayed back. He wasn't yet old enough to, to travel to, to England, to United Kingdom. And when he was, I, if you mean that story, when he was five years old, he was um, actually his sister. He was also with his sister there then. Um, and he saw Hitler going by. And, uh, you know, all the kids were picking up their hand. So he also picked it up. So then his sister you know, just smacked him. And he remembers clearly how, you know, that they were forcing the Jews to, you know, clean the floors and 
all that. But thank God. I mean, it's it's nothing that we could explain. But my grandfather one night was arrested, and when he was released the next morning, he came back home. It was actually a Friday night. I'm not sure if it was Kristallnacht or not. When he came back the next morning, he said, "We're leaving." And obviously, it was very difficult because they had a whole uh, company that was producing. Um, uh, but they had they had a good business going on there, and they basically left everything. They just left everything, and they took the the first ship they could uh, take to the U.S. It actually went through Italy, and that's where my father ended up uh, later on. My father grew up actually in um, not as a Chabad boy. He was in Agoda. He was running uh, the camp there, and at a certain point, he just wanted to do more and and be more effective. And he started coming to Chabad and he actually founded the Camp Gan Israel, the first one in New York. Um, that's also a whole story on its own. Um, basically, it's incredible how the, the Rebbe didn't, you know, the Rebbe believed like if you have to do something, there's a time for everything. And, you know, my father was pushing the Rebbe, he wanted to start the camp already, you know, start organizing in January, February, and the rabbi said, no, there's time, there's time. And, and the rabbi just like around April, the rabbi said, okay, now you can start working on camp. Like the rabbi didn't want him to lose focus and stop learning. He knew that if he's going to start working on camp, then he, he won't be learning anymore. So in like two months, they put together this camp and, you know, without any experience. And they had hundreds of kids. And that was the first Ganesra. And... Um, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, there's a lot to talk about that. I don't know, <laughs> we have enough time to talk about everything. Let's let's move into the slideshow. That's incredible. I just think as an introduction to recognize how, where your father came from as a young boy and now where, you know, he came back to Europe, back uh, to, to lead uh, the Chabad community uh, in the 60s, you know, where the Rebbe sent him. And then you, now you're, you're continuing that and uh, he's got descendants and hundreds of grandchildren and great-grandchildren all around the world spreading the light of Judaism. I think it's an incredible, incredible story. Again, going into Hanukkah uh, of Jewish uh, survival and, and thriving above survival. So let's, let's take a look at this beautiful slideshow that you have. If you can share us uh, pictures and tell us what's going on. Okay, yeah. So just want to introduce this my family. And uh, we've been living in Rome for the past 13 years. And just... Um, a few years ago, like four years ago, we um, we were we were operating in a in a shul in a synagogue that was uh, you know hosting us. And a few years ago, after we were basically outgrew the shul and we really didn't have any more space to do our activities there, we opened up the Chabad Center, um, which is still pretty small, but uh, hopefully. And this was uh, the inauguration. We had also a minister came and other uh, different representatives from, from the city, city council. And in this uh, center, we have courses, we have activities for children. Actually, now we just finished one. And one of the biggest activities that we do, we actually do part of it in our Chabad center now, but mm, the biggest part we don't do in the Chabad center because we don't have enough space, obviously. We host about uh, 250 people for the Seder on Pesach. Obviously, it's mostly tourists. Um, but also locals. And Hanukkah that is coming up, we have our Hanukkah Menorah in the square. And actually it was an interesting story because we, there, there is already, as you can see, this is the Hanukkah Menorah, the Chabad has been lighting in Rome for the past um, 30, over 30 years in, in the center of Rome. And uh, we, we weren't expecting to put up a big Hanukkah Menorah, um, but, People from the city council came over to me and said, you know what, you know, our area is a very Jewish area. We live like in a certain area of Rome that is all the, most of the Jews that were um, in 1967, they had to leave Libya. There was a pogrom there and basically the Jews had to, had to leave and they left everything there. They came with really nothing. And they came to this area of Rome that is called Piazza Bologna. That's where we are and they rebuild themselves incredibly like they build themselves their families their businesses they, they grew they they opened the synagogues and we came to this area and we didn't think we would put up a Hanukkah menorah but 
when uh, you know someone in the city council came over to me and said you know it's not fair that there is one in the center of Rome but here in this area is like you know the most Jewish area like there's you know we have to celebrate it out, outdoors so that's when we decided to put up a Hanukkah menorah so uh, it's also I mean it, it, it's the whole history here is full of miracles of things just happen by by themselves like you know they're coming to us and asking us to put up the hand I mean it's just you know certain places you have to go and you know beg them and could we get the permit and they they take care of everything they they put um soldiers there to guard the menorah 24 hours and they they take care of everything they organize everything I just send them an email I said we need to put up the menorah and I, I get all the permits when usually you need to get a permit for, you know, for putting something in a public space, you have to go there and, you know, fill up papers and, and put, you know, all these, um, um, you know, you have to pay all these things and it's, it's very complicated and you get, we, I mean, they do the work for us, but they basically get um, permission from like 20 different departments. There's like the, the garden and there's the, the electricity and every, don't ask, it's, Everything is very complicated here in Italy. Um, actually, this year, we, I mean, I, I don't want to yet um, say it officially, but we um, asked for a permit. Again, also, it's something that came somehow from the city, and we didn't have to really work hard, but we're waiting now to see if we're going to get a permit. I think for the first time, we're going to light, we hope, we're going to be able to light the menorah in front of the Colosseum. But uh, you know, this is uh, yes, not uh, <laughs> official. So we heard it first. It. We heard it yeah. first here at the CZK Mitzvah Society, zooming around the world. You get to hear the secrets. That's incredible. That's incredible. Wow. So, so this just is to the, hear that. This is the menorah in the center of Rome, and every year there's really um, basically maybe a thousand people come. You know, on the main night, and every night there's like also 50, 60 people, and you know all the you know the 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 mayor every year comes and you know any anybody that wants to you know show support for the jewish people is there and it's, it's really a very um very very nice event like it's in the center of rome and it's jewish pride like on display there's no and actually in the same square uh, i don't i didn't manage to get a picture in the slideshow but also uh, there is a, a sukkah that is built every year during sukkahs and it's open sukkah and everybody could come in and, and eat and just, you know, to have a sukkah available for everybody. Okay, uh, this is our sukkah actually in our Chabad center. And I didn't manage to get a picture of the, we have meals, obviously this was just um, a bris. We actually had two, two bris in this, this uh, sukkah. <laughs> so I just, uh, I just uh, found a picture of this one. But uh, yeah, thank God um, there is a, incredible Jewish revival in Rome in the past five, six, seven, eight years. And um, there, when we came, there were maybe like two or three kosher restaurants. Today, there's about 20 of them. Actually, on Friday, a friend of mine just told me that he's opening, um, he has um, um, a chain of restaurants and he's opening a kosher one now. And he just, you know, this is another restaurant that is opening up, but the, thank God there's there is um, kosher restaurants and shops really flourished in the past uh, maybe five, six years. Uh, and this is, the truth is, it has, it, the, the effect of the tourists is not such a big effect because even in our area, which is not such a tourist area, there's about five restaurants. And even if you go in the restaurants in the ghetto that we're going to get there soon, um, the ghetto of Rome, you you could see local non-Jews, local Jews, tourists, like also non-Jewish tourists eating there. It's it's not like a, a place where just Jews go there. It's a place where just everybody goes there. And soon I'm going to show you a video, which is really incredible, that I actually took this morning in the ghetto. Um, okay, I think, okay, just the one last uh, piece of information. Uh, my family, my father, actually, about already over 50 years, we go picking for etrogim, etrogim, the citrus that we use on Sukkot. In Calabria, there's a tradition that um, that's the place where the Jews got the, the etrogim at the beginning 
before even they entered Israel. And uh, so for about over 50 years, my, my father, um, under the instruction of the Baal goes there and we pick a surrogate. Uh, obviously today there's uh, many people that come, but uh, my father still uh, talks about the times when they used to go with a little, like on a horse and, and pick the 10, 20 surrogate that they used to pick for that year. Today, obviously the numbers are uh, in the tens of thousands and not hundreds of thousands, but uh, things have changed. Um, I just want to check the chat. Are Israelis coming to settle in Rome? Actually, um, we we work a lot with Israelis, with Israeli students, and and um, the, the the Israeli ambassador is actually a very good friend. He comes very often. I mean, whenever he needs anything, he just comes here to Chabad. Um, I mean, he comes every year for the um, you know to get his little monastery egg or anything else he needs. Uh, he's actually, um, I would say, traditional. He's um, he's very, very, you know, warm to the anything that has to do with the Jewish religion, and he's um, so there isn't. I wouldn't say that there's so many Israelis coming to settle permanently. There is here and there. I must say, a few families. But if you think of the amount of people, first of all, the amount of people that work in the Israeli embassy, we're talking about. I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 families. And there is a, the, the, the Israeli embassy runs a Hebrew um, Sunday school. They have 80 kids. It's all in Hebrew. So you can understand just the amount of Israelis that live here. Besides that, a lot of Israelis come here to learn and we actually host them. We do a lot of activities for them. We host them for Shabbat. And we're in touch with about 150 Israeli students that are learning here in Rome. And um, thank God, I must say that, you know, almost all of them go back to Israel and almost all of them are, um, you know, together or getting married to someone Jewish. So this is really one of our main focuses that we... Okay. Mindy, maybe you want to... Oh, everybody there you go. Okay, yeah. Sorry about that. Fantastic. Okay, so you really gave us a lot of the current events of what's going on in the Jewish community of Rome, and specifically where you are. Can you tell us again the name of your location? Okay, so we are in Piazza Bologna. Piazza Bologna, fantastic. And you mentioned that you had a slide, you had a video of the ghetto. Can you tell us a little yeah, bit about we'll, that? And oh, okay, this, so, this is a famous picture. <laughs> yeah, so if, if you don't mind, I'll, I want to just give some historical background. Absolutely. Um, of Rome. So... This is uh, something that you might all know about. This is the Arch of Titus. So the Jews actually were living in Rome even before the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And there's different stories of, of uh, Jews coming to Rome, rabbis coming to Rome. And um, this, so, so basically when the temple was destroyed, it's not that there was no Jews in Rome. There were Jews in Rome that were free. There were merchants. There were Jews in Rome. There were rabbis. And they even had a, a yeshiva in Rome. It says Rabbi Mateh ben Harash had a yeshiva. So when the temple was actually destroyed and, and the Jews were taking slaves, it wasn't that all the Jews were slaves. There were Jews that had money, Jews that were free, but some Jews were taking as slaves. And when, when they came to Rome, so these slaves were used to build the Colosseum and they were forced to fight in the Colosseum. And the fights were between men and men or men and animals. And it was just, that, that was their game that they were playing. And obviously the, the Caesar decided just with a, with a thumb up or thumb down if the person should die or live. It was just, this, is, this was their culture. So um, when they won the war, this is what they say, that they built an arch to, to celebrate Titus that destroyed the, the temple in Jerusalem. And it must have been a very important thing, although, you know, you think like, you know, this little small country, but, and it's, you know, but it was, I guess, they, even for them, it was a big victory that they were able to win the Jews. And there's the famous line, Judah Kapta, that means Jews were captured, and they even um, made coins with it, which were found um, recently. So this is a very interesting um, 
uh, thing that in the Arch of Titus, there is this, um, what everybody knows as the menorah. And actually this is a little bit connected with Hanukkah, yeah? So uh, actually this is what you see is not really what, uh, what happened. That means uh, there's different uh, explanations, but the Lubavitch Rebbe talks a lot about this. And, and he says that if you look at, the, at, this, uh, at this picture and you could see that there's a lot of uh, non-Jewish uh, symbols on the menorah. There's a, a dragon and other things. So basically the idea is that they just made a, something resembling what was in the Beis Amikdash in the temple. Could even be that it was just a, a, just a, another um, candelabra that was found in Jerusalem. It was maybe made out of gold or something precious and they decided to bring it. We don't know really, but what the Rebbe learns, uh, like analyzing this picture, also the fact that the, that the menorah here is round and the, the explanation of Rashi and the Rambam and all these commentaries say that uh, it was actually straight. So this is actually, you know, like history could, um, you could see things and, and, and think that you know what, what really happened, what really, but really if you go deep into it, and you see, you don't have to believe everything you see, basically, this is the idea. And, and the Rebbe explains that, you know, it just it goes on with a lot of different explanations, but basically that this is not the actual menorah. So um, because the actual menorah was straight and the actual menorah wasn't built like this, it was, it's, it's very similar, but it's not this. So um, although, you know, it's obviously something that we see uh, every time we go there, but we know that, um, you know, this is just uh, a symbol of what they were trying to show. Anyway, so going on, um, this is a very interesting thing. This is about uh, a thousand years later. Rome and Italy, actually there, there were a lot of rabbis that uh, came to Rome, uh, to Italy in general. And uh, there was Nassim, Rabbi Nassim Berichiel, and he was um, one of the rabbis that left the mark, he made a, a dictionary on, he wrote a dictionary, it's called Ha'aruch, he wrote a dictionary on, on, the, um, on the Talmud, basically any word that wasn't, um, you know, that didn't have, uh, any word that isn't simple to understand what it means, he wrote basically a dictionary for the Talmud. So someone there learning the Talmud could, could know what every word means. So this is his house. And as you could see, it's a, it has different floors. And in this house, in the underground level, they found a mikveh. There's no picture of it, but th this is the underground level. Today, this uh, building is a restaurant. It's called Ristorante Divino, which is a play of words because it, it could mean Divino, that means of wine, or Divino is divine. So the owner actually is well aware that this uh, this building has a very special historical meaning and uh, he treasures it and uh, you know he they even have sometimes kosher events there it's just very um uh, something very interesting and actually in this area this area where this uh, building is found this is in the area of trastevere which is over the river i'm going to soon show you a picture of what it means and in that area, actually, a few years ago, um, they found under a building, they found um, remains of like a, a cemetery. And they basically transferred the whole cemetery. Uh, it was about 45 graves to, uh, to a Jewish cemetery. But it was just incredible because that area was known historically as Campo Judeo, like the Jewish camp, like the Jewish burial place. And it's amazing how they were able to find their thing. Actually, I, in our area of Rome, I, I didn't put in pictures, but in our area of Rome, um, right really next door to where we live here, uh, there is a big um, park. And under this park, there is the catacombs. And I, I didn't put pictures of it, but the catacombs were burials that since at the time, of the Romans, there was it was prohibited to bury people. It wasn't it wasn't considered like something to do, 
and the Jews had to bury their people, their, their deads, and they didn't have where to bury them. So they built underground tunnels. And, and in these tunnels, they used to bury people. It was like a secret thing. And there's all over Rome, and there's the Christians have theirs, and the, the Jews have theirs. And, um, and just right here, there's a very big one. And the past, um, about three years ago, three, four years ago, they finished um, just uh, fixing it all up and, and you know, re-covering um, all this all the bones and everything and it's and it's still not yet open to the public but that's the idea hopefully one day it's going to be open it's just they say that underground there's still a lot of gases and it's not safe to be there but i hope one day they're going to open it and actually uh, a few months ago i mean the the italian government the the city of rome approved a, a construction a build the building of a, of a holocaust museum that was a few months ago uh, that was a few, maybe already like 10 years ago, they have already a project, but just a few months ago, they finally gave it the final approval of candor. They started working on it. So that that's also going to be right around in our area, um, a very big Jewish, uh, the Holocaust Museum. Okay, so let me just look at the chat. Um, okay, we're going to continue and I'm going to, I'm going to answer the questions later. Yeah, okay. Uh, very interesting questions. If you have more questions, please. Um, so this is the Ghetto of Rome. Now, how was this location uh, chosen? Very simple, because as you see here, there's a, a wall, but there wasn't a wall uh, then when the when the ghetto was uh, uh, was decided. It was basically it was the worst part of Rome because anytime the water level would rise, it would go in inside. And actually, there is a, a plaque on one of the walls in the ghetto. It says in 16-something, the water level arrived to this level, like, you know, to like about, you know, four or five feet. So uh, it, was, it was one of the worst places to live in Rome. And that's where they decided that the Jews have to be, um, have to be, they can't mix. The, the, basically, what happened was that the Vatican, the Pope, um became like like an authority it was like there was the the actual state or whatever it was but the pope had very strong power and the pope uh came out with a decree that the jews cannot mix with the non-jews and the, the jewish doctors cannot cure the non-jews and um they limited the jews very much um and one of the things was that they had to by night they had to all go back and live in the ghetto and part of the idea is they didn't want them to you know mix and intermarry with the non-jews at the same time they wanted to convert the jews so all around the ghetto there is um churches with hebrew um writing on them on the outside and the jews were forced to go to hear the mass and uh, that was part of their you know try to convert them to Christianity. So the Jews used to, you know, fill their ears with cotton or whatever they put in. Um, there's a lot of stories because basically there's a famous story um, of um, Mortara, a child that was baptized, not in Rome, but basically what the Christians said, once a child was baptized, um, he became, he's not part of the family anymore. And basically they used to like um, uh, take away children from the from their from their from their parents um okay um okay so this is the ghetto of rome um just one second uh this is the ghetto of rome and uh, as you could see now it's pretty big i don't know if it was so big at the beginning if you look at the you could see right away the great synagogue standing. This was built just about 100 years ago, um, once the ghetto was uh, open in 1870. So about the in beginning of 1900, that's when the great synagogue was built. The other building that you see on the left, I don't know if I could point. Maybe I could, one second. Yeah. So. Okay, this is the Jewish school today. 
and this is the great synagogue okay now the jewish school actually um wasn't was a building that was built um also about uh, 70 80 years ago in that place there used to be another building that was taken apart that building had in it five synagogues it was called cinque scale scale means comes from the word shul or school um so the jews were um the, the 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 Vatican allowed the Jews to have one show, one synagogue, but it doesn't work because you have Jews that come from uh, uh, Sicily, Jews that came from uh, Spain, Jews that came from Germany, and everybody has a different way of of davening of praying, and they have you know different ways that they pray and and different tones that they pray and and like you know and and people just don't get along, so you can't have one place. So what do they do? They said, okay, fine, we have this building. This is our, our, our synagogue, very good. And basically they divided that building in five different synagogues. So they were able to, everybody had their own uh, show. Why um, were there so many Jews coming from all over? Because in 1492, the Jews had to leave Spain or convert. And in 1512, the Jews, all the Jews in Southern Italy had to, the same thing happened also, there was inquisition also in, in, in the South of Italy, uh, Sicily, um, the whole reign of Naples, all the Jews had to leave or convert. So basically everybody, the first stop was Rome. So Rome became, um, you know, with a lot of Jews and um, actually not everybody was, had the privilege to live in Rome. Most of the Jews were living outside because to live in the city, you had to have a special permission. You had to be, you had to do a job that was needed for the city. Either you were lending money or other jobs that were important that they wanted you to live in Rome. But if not, you didn't have permission to live in the big city. And most of the Jews were actually living in the small cities around Rome. And that's why um, the Jews have their last names here in, in Rome, especially, start with the word D. D means from. So it's Diseni, Dinepi, um, Diveroli. It's all small towns around Rome. That's where they came from. That's their last name. So even, even though the ghetto was very populated, and I don't know if you could see, um, some there is some original buildings here. Um, maybe this building over here, you could see that um, this last floor, it's a little bit hard to see, but this last floor was added on um, after. That means there wasn't enough space. So they were just like building, um, you know, another floor, another floor on top. Um, yeah, so this went on till 1870. There were some small interruptions in the middle, but till 1870, just before we leave the slideshow, um, there's another interesting thing here. Uh, this is a church, just for your information. This is one of the churches. Um, this is Teatro Marcello. This was a theater. Um, now, this today is the Jewish hospital. And this is another hospital that's called Fatti Bene Fratelli. And this hospital actually um, has a very interesting story in the Holocaust. A doctor in this hospital, he actually just passed away. I don't remember his name now, but he decided, and it's very appropriate for these times that we're living in with Corona. He decided that there's a disease. I forgot the name of the disease that he made up. And he decided that there's this disease and certain people are infected with this disease and they have to be in quarantine and no one could get close to them. And he saved in this way, hundreds of Jews by, um, by putting them in this hospital and in and, and telling the Germans that you know you can't you can't go there, you can't get close to them, you can get infected, it's, it's dangerous. And uh, I, I forgot the name, I said it's something with X, like he made up a new, a new, you know, at that time there was no internet at Google. I guess the Germans weren't able to, to figure that out, and he actually saved a lot of people. Um okay, now um, we're getting to the more sad part before we get to the happy part. Okay, 
this is the actually okay this is a picture actual picture from the 16th of october 1943 and that's shampas morning that's when the germans decided to raid the ghetto and sorry and actually the it didn't start just then uh, the germans were, were in italy ready from 1941 and uh, they it was a very difficult time for the jews and they uh, but you know the jews felt safe somehow the germans tricked them and told them that if you're going to give us 50 kilo of gold we're going to save you and what happened was that um this was just a pretext to get a list of all the people and and um, it's a very sad story but in Shabbat morning, the 16th of October, the Germans raided the whole, not just the ghetto, actually, they raided the whole city. And there's stories of people who saved themselves. I actually know a person who comes to Shul every Shabbat. And his he has an incredible story. You could look it up. Um, um, he, he basically ran away. His, his mother just told him, just go, run, run. He didn't know what to do. He ran and he took the, the, the train the tram it's like the light train and he was just sitting there and then when he came to the last stop the the conductor the driver uh, realized that something is wrong you know what is this boy doing here so he didn't say anything he understood what was going on and for four days he was just on this train going back and forth back and forth that's how he saved himself and they brought him food and uh, somehow after that, he managed to find someone and he survived the war. Um, so actually, on that day, about 1,200 people were deported. But in total, from Rome, about 2,000 people were deported. And I think in total, about 20 uh, came back. So it, um, and after, after the war, actually, was was also a very difficult period because the chief rabbi of Rome, actually, he... After two years after the war, he converted to Christianity. It was kind. People said that maybe he felt in debt to 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 the non-Jews who's you know who helped who helped him and helped a lot of other Jews to get saved. A lot of Jews were saved by non-Jews and here in Rome, uh, hiding them. There's a lot of stories, and um, obviously some were obviously um, some people told the Germans of, of some people, but. Mostly, most of the Jews that were able to, to escape survived. Now, um, in the past uh, 10, 15 years, there's this project that a, a, actually a German guy started, and it's all over Europe, but in, in Italy, it's very, it's very strong. And there's um, basically they put these, um, these stones in front of the buildings where the Jews were deported. So you could go, actually, today I was walking. And some non-Jewish family asked me, like, where, where could we go see these stones? Like, they were talking Spanish. I, I just, they just showed me a picture. So I just, you know, told them, go to the ghetto. Every building there has some stones there. And, and it says the name of the person. Um, if he was deported, when he was deported, where, and if he died, and or if he survived. So over here, you see one of the people that survived, Leone Sabatello. Um, you could see it says, sopravvissuto, that means survived. Um, let's just clear this. Okay, we're almost finished, and then we're going to look at the questions. Okay, so this is a, a video that I took today, this morning. I want to show it to you, and I'm going to um, just explain to you what's going on while I'm showing it to you. Okay, as you can see, this is the ghetto of Rome. And it's full of restaurants. Not all of them are kosher. Not all of them are kosher. Most of them are kosher. Okay, you could see these tables. There's hundreds of tables. You could understand that uh, it's not all uh, Jewish people eating at all these tables. It's, uh, I hope you heard me during the video. Um, so there's, as I said, over 20 kosher restaurants and in the ghetto, not all of them are kosher, but most of them. And as you could see all these tables, there's hundreds of people that come to eat there. And you could understand it's not all Jewish people. It's 
a lot of non-Jewish people. It's a very fancy area today in Rome, uh, very central. Um, it's close to traffic and uh, the apartments that the Jews, when the ghetto was open, they, a lot of Jews just, you know, ran away from the ghetto and the, they thought, you know, this, this area is not worth anything and they just sold their apartments. Today, they're regretting, they're regretting it because it's one of the highest um, real estate area in the whole world. And um, so you could see here, and from here, this is the main street of the ghetto. We're gonna turn. And this is the Jewish school. And down there is the great synagogue. I'm gonna show you, I hope I have some, no, I don't have any pictures of the great synagogue, but down there is a the great synagogue. And this is just another incredible thing that you hear. This is again, the, the street of the ghetto. And I just want to show you something very interesting. You'll see. As you could see, there's all these tables. And you see here, there's a line. There's a line of people. They're all waiting online. There's a very famous kosher Jewish bakery here. It's a tiny little place. It's, it's tiny. You, you, even before COVID, you were able to fit just maybe three people inside. So all these people are waiting online to go in to be able to buy something. They say even the Pope sends someone to buy, to buy him cakes from here. And there's typical Roman Jewish cakes that are made here. And some people love them. Some people just don't like them because they're part of them are burnt. Some of them are made with um, a type of ricotta and they have all different uh, cakes that, you know, they were made in the ghetto. The Jewish Roman cuisine is made out of things that were, they, they didn't have money. They, they just had leftovers, they, whatever they were able to, you know, get in the market that people left over. So they have all these recipes that are like, almost, you know, like the same way we have the chalent and or Ashkenazim. So they have all the different little things that they were able to save. And from that, they made their, their, their recipes. So I guess the cakes are part of this, um, this tradition. Um, just very interesting that, you know, you could see this big line. And that's it for my presentation. Now let's look at the questions. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it wasn't that was, too boring. That was absolutely incredible. Rabbi Lazar, thank you so much for taking the time to create that slideshow and to go out and take those videos. Definitely, definitely something um, we all enjoyed. And uh, to hear the story, the ups and the downs, what a down, and then to see the, the life back on those streets and kosher restaurants and just the uh, Jewish community thriving with a school now in the same building that, you know, we were imprisoned in. It's definitely an inspiration for us all. So definitely let's get to the questions in the chat. If you don't mind, if you can see them. Um, I think there was some important questions there. If you want to, if you want to read them out loud and then answer them, and yeah, then we'll open yeah, up yeah, the mics. Yeah. If there's any other questions that people want to ask on the mic. Okay. Just one second. So um, does the Vatican have the temple artifacts? So there's a lot of um, legends about it, but there's actually a real story. And uh, I'll try to say it as quickly as possible because there's so much to talk about. Um, there's a rabbi in actually in Libya. This is in, in the 18, at the eight, end, end of the 1800s. There was a rabbi in Libya, very famous rabbi. And the, uh, the, uh, maybe no maybe a little bit later sorry because it was uh king vittorio Emanuele, and the king came to to libya and he met this rabbi and he was so um impressed by this rabbi and he decided uh he wants to when his uh, daughter or son got married he he invited the rabbi to come he wanted the rabbi to be there to bless the couple whatever it was uh, so the rabbi came obviously and before the rabbi left so the king told him listen tell me one thing, you know, what could I do for you? You know, what could I give you? I want to give you something. You know, you came all the way here. So he said, I don't want anything, but I know it's not in your power. But if you could ask the Vatican, if I could go see what they have. And he said, look, you know, it's not so simple, but I'll try. And after a few days, he came back and he told them, yeah, actually, they gave me permission. But uh, I don't know if they told him that he can't say anything or basically what happened that when he went in there, 
and he came out and he was just pale and he said and he, and he didn't say anything he didn't want to say anything he couldn't say anything i don't know and there's a lot of other stories that are i don't know if they're true or not true of people saying that they were in there and they saw things so until we don't see anything we don't know um most probably the the treasures of the, the artifacts of, of the of the temple were um were um, um were hidden under the temple before the romans came they're, they're they're discovering now a whole bunch of uh, tunnels and and these are things that are brought in the talmud already and uh, also um i don't want to go it's it's there's a lot to talk about there's there is there's a there's a in the talmud there's a story that a rabbi came to rome and he says that he saw the tzitz the tzitz was like this uh, plaque of gold that the kohen uh, gadol the high priest used to wear on his forehead and he said he saw it and and he says that on it it said the the words holy for god kadosh lashem and it, it was in one line and the rabbis told him it's impossible. We know that it, it didn't, it, it wasn't written in one line. It was written uh, first um, on the higher line, the name of God. And then on the bottom line, it said, holy for. So the name of God came first. And, and that's, that's the whole, um, that's all discussion. It just stops there. And, and it just doesn't make sense. Like they're discussing about like, you know, you know what's going on like we're talking about something he said he saw something you tell him no it's impossible like so what he's a liar he's like what's going on so the rabbi gives an explanation very very like simple explanation but just like you understand like how much that the the jews knew that the romans i mean the romans were in israel before they destroyed the temple for tens of years and the jews knew that you know at some point they're gonna come and and I mean the, the the temple the just Jerusalem was under siege for like two years I think um so they knew that the end is gonna come so what did they do they created copies of everything but you cannot make a, a actual copy of something so everything they made they changed something in order that it wasn't the actual thing because it shouldn't be holy it shouldn't because if you do the actual exact copy then it becomes holy so this is maybe also one explanation of um the the menorah that they took we don't know but you know until mashiach doesn't come we're never gonna know the truth um i actually have a friend his name is roy doliner he's a he's a he's a tour guide and a, and he wrote different books on one book is assisting chapel secrets uh, he has a lot of uh, uh theories i mean um you could read about theories from all different views some people say some stuff is uh, is actually um was actually taken to other countries. Uh, anyway, let's go on. Uh, do you have any, uh, do you have ever encounter any tension from the Vatican? Okay, so thank God, I don't have to deal with it. We have a great chief rabbi here who's really smart and he knows how to deal with these things. And um, yeah, it's crazy that today in 2021, the Christians still have certain prayers that talk against the Jews, that the Jews need to convert and all these things. And he, and he talks about it, and he he goes and talks in the Vatican, um, in the Vatican University, and uh, I mean these things. You know, there's also another rabbi from Argentina, Rabbi Saka, who's a very good friend of the Pope, and you know they talk about these things. And uh, you know, obviously, we're not so happy. We Jews are not so happy because you know, the Vatican is uh, trying to always to be like like they say in in Parv. They didn't want to say anything like not not to hurt anybody so everything is like peace and love but you know at a certain point you have to put your foot down you can't just like people are getting killed in the world and you're just saying okay let's make peace you know so um so the chief rabbi actually deals with this and uh once in a while there's like some uh, controversies but the, the we're still living together in the same city um do you have any holka survivor especially from the from the get in your community yeah so i said like there's this guy that comes to show every every um every shabbos there's a guy that just passed away a few years ago he actually came to us to give a presentation about his life and all these people you have to understand they
didn't speak about the, their history till very lately. Like in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, almost no one spoke until the Holocaust came, became like a trend. You know, everybody thought, you know, everybody, they were scared to speak. They thought people are going to think they're crazy. Like they saw crazy things. Like, you know, you, you, one day you see something, the next day you're liberated and you go back to a normal world and you tell people that, you know, I was there and they were killing people and, you know, no one's going to believe you. They, they, you know, some people, also Primo Levi committed suicide. He was in Torino, but, you know, people just, um, it was just impossible to live. I don't know how people could live with such, um, seeing such things. And um, it's incredible how these people, you know, got married and there's still another uh, survivor, Shlomo Veneta is still alive. And um, there's, a, there's a few survivors still alive, but most of them unfortunately passed away. There's actually a very famous one. Um, she's a woman, I got her name. Um, I'll remember in a second, uh, very nice lady. And she actually became um, a, a Senator for life. And she's very much, uh, you know, she talks a lot about, you know, she's, she's in the news. And the truth is about half a year ago, she said she wants to retire. She, she doesn't have any more strength to go and talk and do. But still, you know, somehow they managed to, you know, get her involved. And she, she's still on stage somehow, although she, she said, you know, she really wants to. She, she did her part. Um, um, Okay, about different popes. Uh, you see, what we believe, I mean, this is between me and you here. So if, uh, I could, if I could just interrupt Rabbi Lazar, if you don't mind reading the question out loud. And yeah, also, so, this, this is on uh, live on Facebook. <laughs> so whatever, yeah. if you just want to. No, it's fine. Be no, aware. It's nothing, nothing. I mean, this is public knowledge. And it's not, uh, I'm just saying as long as it doesn't go on the headlines. But it, it was. If you don't mind just, just reading the question out loud. So yeah, the, the question is, Pope John. Pope John Paul II seemed to be closer to the Jewish community in Israel compared to Pope Francis. I'm curious to know your opinion. For sure, uh, Pope John Paul was, um, you know, he was the one that, I think the first one that came to the, to the great synagogue. And there's no question that, you know, he said that were the, um, the um, how you call them? Fratelli Maggiori, were the, okay, were the, the firstborn were the big brother. Um, so for sure, he changed a lot in, uh, you know, between uh, us and the Christians. But I don't think that, and, and I'm sure he had, a, you know, he had this power to do it because he really believed in it. But I think that, um, that maybe, maybe then that he had the power. Today, I think the Pope, doesn't have so much of a power himself. There's too many people um, around the Pope that decide, you know, it's not that he could just decide one day, okay, I want to do this. And that's why I think that maybe, even though he's he's a very good friend with uh, Rabbi Saka and he has a lot, of, a lot of Jewish friends, but I don't know how much he himself, you know, it could be there's other interests that the Vatican has and, and he, he's prevented from actually uh, showing as much that he would like to maybe. So I, I don't know, it's it's, a lot of internal politics over there, and I'm not uh, well versed in this. You know, we would need to get the Rabbi Dizeni, the chief rabbi of Rome. He would for sure know all the ins and outs of what's going on over there. Um, what is Jewish population of Italy, and how many live in Rome? Very good question. So, um, this has been a number that that never changed in the past, like since I remember the whole time, there's 35,000 Jews in Italy. And actually, if I looked back even before the war, there was 35,000 Jews. So I don't know if people are counting, but um, I would say we're about between 25 and 35,000. It's very hard, although there are Jewish communities and, and, and you know, you have to be registered in the Jewish community. And that's how we know how many Jews there are. There's thousands of people maybe tens of thousands of people that are not registered. So it's very hard to know. I would say that in Rome today, there's about 15,000 Jews. It's more like between 10 and 20,000 Jews. The Jewish school, just to give you an idea, has about um, 1,000 students from kindergarten till um, high school. So I would say there's at least 15,000. Um, also a lot of foreigners, expats that live here. Okay, have you encountered any anti-Semitism? Okay. This is a question that I get very often. So I'll tell you a story that happened just last week. I was walking to Shul and I walked to Shul about, uh, it's, it's about a 40 minute walk every Shabbos. 
morning. It's a show in the center where I, um, it's a show of Rabbi Chazan, but it's, uh, it's, it's in a building of the Jewish community. And part of the, sh there's two uh, shows over there. There's one um, that is the Italian. Oh, I didn't talk about this. There is the, um, you all know that there's Ashkenazim and Sephardim, but what you don't know is that there's also Italians. Italians are not Ashkenazim and not Sephardim. That the Italians have their own siddur. They have their own ritual. They have everything their own. It's totally different. They sing differently. It's all different. You could go online and try to, you know, um, I'm not going to try to sing now, but it's <laughs> totally different. And so they have their shuls have their own uh, nusach, their own way that they daven. So in this building, actually, there's we have two shuls. There's the Italians and the Ashkenazi. So I was walking the other week and a guy stops me and tells me, do you have five seconds? I, I knew it wasn't going to be five seconds. So I started counting. But anyway, he, he tells me, you have to know that um, we need you. We need the Jews in order to bring Italy back to its uh, old splendor. The Jews, uh, I didn't say this, in 1870, when, when Italy was reunited, uh, when Italy was reunited, um, they, um, they needed someone to bomb the, the wall of Rome. And it was in a certain place and, and basically a Christian couldn't do it because it would be like doing something like against the Vatican, the Pope. I don't know exactly the story, but basically, so a Jew had to be there. His name was, um, I forgot his name now, but he was the one that actually, um, 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 blew the cannon and, and broke the wall and, and allowed the Italians uh, to uh, come into Rome and, and, and conquer Rome. So, you know, he was talking about that and he was talking about there was, um, there was a Jewish mayor of Rome, uh, Nathan something, and they, everybody says he was the best mayor of Rome. We had a few years, we had really bad mayors. Now we have a new mayor. We hope it's going to be better. But um, um, and he was saying, like, you know, you, you know, you have to be proud of your Jewish origins and you have to and you have to help us because, you know, the Jews are always the ones that are able to, you know, to get things together. And, you know, when people ask me the whole time, the whole time, every day, not not locals, I'm talking about tourists that come here. They ask me, you know, is it safe to go around Rome? And I go around, you know, looking as a Jew for my whole life in Italy and nothing ever happened to me. Um. Like, you know, maybe sometimes someone screams over something Jew or something, but you know, it's nothing that I would get afraid. Um, actually, one night I was coming back from show, it was after Shabbat, this is just a, a small story. And I was walking with someone, a friend, and someone just like, you know, kind of touched me. And I felt it was kind of on purpose, like a little boy, not little, whatever, 17, 18, year, 19 years old. And, um, and, you know, I asked him what happened, what, 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 what do you do? And he right away got, a, you know, the defensive. No, I didn't do anything. Anyway, so some people heard about it. So they had a whole parade, like in support, you know, the rabbi was attacked. You know, this was like the major thing that happened. <laughs> uh, so really, um, I, I'm really nothing to be scared of um, being, you know. Um, what is the Vatican's current relationship with, Rome, with the Jewish community of Rome? It's a normal relationship. It's, um, you know, um, it's cordial. Like, you know, they send messages back and forth whenever there's something. And uh, thank God uh, everything is uh, very peaceful now. Do you have any other questions? Wow. Okay. Any other questions from, the, from our members here that want to ask on their mics? You can unmute if you'd like to ask from our rabbi in Rome. I think you covered everything. Look at that. From A to Z. There's well, still a lot to talk about. Um, <laughs> actually, um, we just had a program here for children. And, um, and it's incredible how much, like, I, we just put up an online store of, uh, you know, Judaica. And, and now for Hanukkah, we're just getting tons of order. We, we just put it up. I didn't even publicize it, but we we're just getting tons of orders of Hanukkah miners from all over the world. Not all over Italy, sorry. <laughs> And, um, and it's just incredible to see, you know, how people are just looking for, you know, to be able to, to, to celebrate Hanukkah. 
So as Mandy said, I hope you're gonna, you know, reach out to him if you, or not just, it's not just for yourself. You should um, reach out to your Jewish friends and ask them if they have their candles, if they're missing the menorah. I'm sure Mandy could provide them too. So, you know, we, sh we shouldn't be selfish and just like be happy that, you know, we're able to celebrate, but we should try to, uh, try to find other people that maybe, you know, they're just, they, you know, some people like, oh, wow, Hanukkah is next week. Oh, I didn't know. You know, like <laughs> I actually had a student here, came here for Shabbat. He's actually learning in Perugia. And he, he just before the Zoom, he came in and to pick up a menorah. He was here for Shabbat. He came to us and I was talking to him. I said, do you have your candles, your menorah? He's from, he's from California. And he tells me, oh my gosh, wow, Hanukkah? Oh, it's right. It's ready now because like people think Hanukkah is like more like, you know, at the end of December and this year it's very early. So, you know, if you know anybody, just, you know, remember to ask them, like, do you have your candles? Do you have your menorah? Just make sure that, you know, people don't forget. Absolutely. What a great way to sign off. Thank you so, so much, Rabbi Menachem. Uh, I think we'll, we'll I have uh, one last question. Should I answer? Okay. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Okay. What is the level of observance in your show? Are there anyone who wanted to convert? Okay. That's very interesting. So um, the Jews, both the Romans, the Romans were always very traditional, not very religious. That means that, you know, um, for them observing Shabbat was like not to light fire um, or, um, you know, to eat kosher meant not to eat uh, pork. You know, this was their level of, of, uh, of religion. But um, the Libyans came, and the Libyans are more traditional, and they, they actually, you know, keep Shabbat, not all of them, uh, some of them keep Shabbat and are more observant. And, and slowly, as I said, in the past maybe 10 years, there's like a, a total um, revival of people getting closer. So you could come to Shul, and you could have someone that is totally not religious. He comes to Shul with a cell phone and everything, and like, you know he's just coming you know to be together with his friends and you could have people that just became religious uh, two or three years ago and they became you know start keeping shabbat they, there's everybody there's no differences between people here because like we're all part together just you know everybody grew together it's not like they um people just became more religious as they went on and you know no one's gonna feel like you know i'm better than you because you know i became religious like it's it, you know it's your friend you know why should you now feel different than him um and the last thing about the converts yeah there is a lot of people that want to convert I actually had a guy came here last week that is going to start hopefully his conversion i have uh, another two actually two guys came last week that are one is already um, in the middle of his conversion um yeah there are people that convert and it's you know they 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 have to actually, you know, live it and, you know, they, they have people following them. And I follow some people, but, um, you know, once they see that they're really actually serious and they actually, um, they're willing to live a full Jewish life, so they convert them. So there is uh, a lot of people um, that converted, that are part of the community. Um, I would say just where I pray, there's maybe two or three of them but there's, there's a lot of them. Beautiful. Beautiful. Well, I think I'm, I'm just like everyone is uh, feeling and put, put in the chat as well. This was an incredible stop in our zooming around the world. And we definitely have to get a return ticket. I like that idea. We'll have to come back to hear more. As you said, there's so much more to hear and it's so interesting, so informative and so inspiring. And good luck with getting that menorah up in front of the Coliseum. That's an incredible, incredible feat. Wow. Wow. Definitely keep that in mind and hope maybe we can get a picture. You'll send me by WhatsApp a picture of that so I can share it, you know, the next time we get together um, here on the screen. Thank you so much. Happy Hanukkah. Can you tell us? Happy Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah in Italian. How do you say that? Buon Hanukkah. Oh, okay. That was pretty simple. Bon Hanukkah. Is there a website uh, if we want to reach out to you or if any of us are going to come visit Rome? Uh, how can we yeah, actually, uh, be in touch with you? Actually, I have a website that I made with all the, um, not just in Rome, also for Italy and Europe. But if you go to jewishrome.com, you'll see the list of all the synagogues, all the restaurants, all the everything. Incredible. 
incredible. And and we can find you. Are you closer to the ghetto or is that? Is... No, we're in the area of Katabarin, which is not so close to the ghetto, but it actually became, also now it's going to become even more tourists because of the museum. And But there's a lot of kosher hotels in this area. And, you know, we have every Friday night, we have a Shabbat dinner. And, you know, we, we used to have, you know, 20, 30, 40 tourists. Today, we're having more like uh, 10, 15. But um, yeah, we, we still have also a lot of people, you know, also a lot of people, you know, just want to come to Chabad and be together with people. So it's not just going to to a restaurant and, you know, sitting by your, on your own, you know, you get to know people. So, yeah. Well, you're going to get lots more here because you sold us Rome. You sold it all right. So we're all on our way. <laughs> Thank you so much, Menachem. Thank you, Rabbi Lazar. Incredible, incredible. And good luck with everything above and beyond all expectations. And Bon Chanukah. And really incredible what you're doing, like these, uh, keeping up this thing every week. It's, uh, you know, not easy. And uh, I'm sure you're doing a great job over there in Montreal. Thank you so much. You're always welcome to join. What time is it by you now? Now it's uh, six, about 6.30, 6.40. P.M. Yeah. P.M. Sunday. Okay, so you're a few hours ahead of us. All right. Well, 11.30 a.m. here every Sunday, please, God. Happy Hanukkah, everybody. See you next Sunday, please, God. And uh, definitely we'll be in touch. Reach out to me if I can be of any help for you, for your friends, neighbors. As Rabbi Menachem shared, let's reach out to all our friends and neighbors if they uh, need a little reminder because Hanukkah is very early. Uh, Hanukkah is very early this year, so let's make sure everyone has what they need. Signing off with some music here. All righty. Happy Hanukkah. All the best. See you next week, please, God. Have a wonderful day.